Let's dig in. Chapter 20. It probably is uh, then important to establish the, the geography of this as well. It tells us in verse 1 that Abraham relocates to Gerar. And on the map that I gave you, you can locate that. Uh, as you know, he had lived up in Mamre, which is along just right along the Jordan uh, River. And so he goes south uh, 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 west, in a way, today what you and I would call the Gaza Strip. That's basically where he is. Uh, as I think I mentioned last week, why he chooses to move there, the Bible doesn't tell us. We, we just don't know. But he chooses to locate there. And what is important is that, uh, and I think you know this, the Canaanite cities were all city-states. They're independent of one another. And so every one of the cities, in effect, had a king, had a ruler. Uh, there's no Canaan as a country. There's no nation state. That kind of stuff doesn't exist yet. So anyway, the, the reason I'm saying all that, because Abimelech is called the king. King of what? He's the ruler of the city, the city state of Gerar, okay? And so he, he goes into this city, that is, Abraham goes into this city, and as he explains later in the chapter, as an act of self-preservation, as an act of self-protection, he says of Sarah, she's my sister. Does that ring a bell? That's exactly what he had said in, 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 in the end of Genesis 12, when because of the famine in the land, he had gone down to, to Egypt. Now, you have to remember something. It's actually quite astonishing. Remember, Sarah is 89 years old. Now, he is fearful that the beauty of Sarah is going to cause Abimelech to take her, because he's the king. And to, in the ancient world, to take some man's wife means you kill the man. <laughs> and he's a ruler, so he has that authority. And so as an act of self-preservation, knowing that's what more than likely could happen, he chooses to lie. Now, actually, as he will explain a little bit later, it's a half-truth. She's actually my father's daughter, but not my mother's. So she's like his half-sister that he married. And I don't know if that's that important. So he will rationalize it a little bit later on. But he's lying. He's being deceitful. And so what, Abraham, uh, excuse me, what Abimelech does is he takes her. He takes Sarah. And so now the situation unfolds. Okay, what is Abimelech going to do? Because remember something. Sarah will carry the covenant son. She, remember we studied that the previous chapter, and that promise has been ongoing since Genesis 12. But she had been declared by the angels who showed up, one year from today, your baby will come. So, I mean, this is all, the whole, the whole covenant program is now threatened. Every, everything is on the line here because of Abraham's deceitfulness. And his, his uh, in a way, his unwillingness to trust the Lord, even in this kind of situation. So the next part of the narrative, verse 3, Abimelech has a dream. And God says to him in that dream, right in the middle of the verse, Behold, you are a dead man. <laughs> That's almost the way we would talk in the 21st century, isn't it? You know, you're a dead man. I mean, it's just it's a clear declaration. Because of the woman whom you have taken, she is a man's wife. Now, this says something to us uh, that I think is important 4,000 years ago and said it should be important to us today. To God, marriage is real important. To, to God, marriage is very sacred. It's a very serious issue to take another man's wife. And so that's what God is saying to Abimelech. You have done something that is abhorrent to me. You've taken another man's wife. You're a dead man. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her. Now, that means, that's a euphemism, meaning they had not yet had sexual intercourse. So this is presumably he takes Sarah into his house. That night is when God speaks to him. So we're hours from when he'd taken her. And then, then listen to what he says. 
Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, that's it's a rhetorical question, but it's a question that he wants answered. Because, and this, this is something we just don't have enough information about from the Bible. Abimelech, in some way, knew that God was just. He had known that God, he, whatever he knew, whatever the content of his knowledge about the true and living God, he had enough to appeal to the justice of God. Do you kill innocent people? And he explains what he means, verse 5. Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So what is Abimelech saying to God? I did not knowingly, willingly, intentionally take this man's wife. He said, she's my sister, and she said, he's my brother. So based on that, I took her into my house. And so God says in verse 6, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Okay, what does that mean? I knew that. This is God speaking. But I also intervened and kept you from having sexual intercourse with her which is a statement, I don't know how else to look at this, a statement of God's sovereignty. God is in control. Because remember, and that this is what is really important in this narrative, the entire covenant program is at stake here. And so God is protecting and guaranteeing and securing this. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Verse 7, Now then return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. So that he will pray for you and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all of yours, all of those who are yours. This is the only time in the Bible where Abraham is declared to be a prophet. And then because he is a prophet, God says he will pray for you. So it's it's a way in which, I mean, this is really extraordinary because the character of Abimelech is rather significant in contrast to Abraham, but the position of Abraham and who he is and God's choice of him and so on hasn't changed that. He is a prophet. And so um, God is saying to Abimelech, and I don't think we're stretching this too far, this is a really important man to me, and his wife is really important to me. And I want you to know this, and I want you to understand this. So now Abimelech understands that what he has done, he shouldn't have done. He had, in a sense, proclaimed his innocence, which God has agreed. But God is saying to him, you've got to take her back, send her back. So what is Abimelech going to do? Okay, are you with me so far? There's a lot going on here. But even Abraham's sin, which is really what this was, does not negate his position and his importance in what God wants to do through him. So now, what does Abimelech do? He goes to Abraham, verse 8. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told them all these things, presumably just what had happened with Sarah and Abraham, what God said. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? To us? How have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin. You have done to me things that ought not to be done. Abimelech said to Abraham, verse 10, What did you see that you did this thing? And Abraham said, I did it because I thought there's no fear of God in this place. They will kill me because of my wife. So, again, why does he do it? It's self-protection. He's not trusting in God to take care of him. He is concluding, because this is a Canaanite city, which it was, and there is no worship in this city of the one true God. I'm a dead man too. They're going to take my wife. And then he goes on, verse 12, is a rationalization. It's a half-truth. She is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. She became my wife. 
When God cautioned me wonder from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place to which I come, say of me, he's my brother, which is accurate because that's what she did down in Egypt in Genesis, end of Genesis 12. All right, yes. Uh, um, are, we, um, are we making a discernment here between the statement, uh, no one, there's no one that worships God here, and uh, a man ruling uh, in a, from a very high moral standard? Because this seems to be a natural flow of his reaction once he finds out about it. That he wants to do the right thing. Abimelech does, that's yeah, right. Abimelech. So, is, I mean, are we distinguishing? <coughs> Do you get that out of these passages? I I hear your words, and I'm not sure what your question is, well, Fred. I'm sorry. Know, what right? we're saying, you know, and, and I don't know that maybe Abraham knew when he said it, maybe he did, because I thought surely, I thought surely. There's no fear of God in this place. But the demonstration by Abimelech is that there is That's right. immediate That's right. fear. That's right. Once he is confronted by God and he talks back to him like right. he may have done this before. So yeah, I, what's the, your thought? Well, I, I mean, the certainly, uh, let's answer it too low. Certainly the conclusion that Abraham is making, or he was at least observing, would have been a reasonable and logical, this is a Canaanite city, to make the assumption that the real true God is going to be honored here would have been, for him, a fantastic idea. And so he concludes reasonably and rationally, this is a city where because it's Canaanite and they're not worshiping, I, I should be afraid of this. But see, again, I mean, what's the point? Abraham, there's another law I want to answer in a minute. But the point is, he's not, here he's not exhibiting his, his quality as a man of faith. Follow me? He's uh, not, yeah. Abraham is not exhibiting the quality oh, of faith absolutely. here. Yeah, I think he's, he's taking the situation again into his own hands and manipulating and conniving and trying to deceive his way out of a precarious, what he perceives as a precarious situation. So, I mean, that's why what Abraham is saying here is very important in just revealing again. Here is a weakness of Abraham, as it is in all of us. He trusts God, but his fear of man is still there. Now, Abimelech is curious to me, and I'm hardly the only one saying this. The, the, the figure of Abimelech is very curious, because is he a man of faith? I mean, he's responding to God talking to him. He's responding to God's justice, God, and God's, in effect, demand on him. And he responds obediently, unquestionably. He doesn't argue. He, he, he agrees to do without any, any equivocation at all what God wants him to do. But I think, again, the contrast is here between Abraham, who is supposed to be a man of faith, and Abimelech, who is not supposed to be a man of faith, which one is coming out more righteous, or at least in terms of his action? And it is just showing again, faith is something that grows in a person's life. You start your walk with God, when, in, you know, because we live on this side of the cross, when you put your faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you start your walk with God. And part of that walk with God is learning to trust him. Abraham is learning to trust God and not be deceitful, not saying, okay, God, I'll take care of this one. You take a little nap. I'll handle Abimelech my way. You know, I mean, I'm really making that very facetious. But it's, it's, it's a contrast between Abraham is not yet where God wants him to be. He has quite a history of improvisation. He does. He does. Mm -hmm. And if you would look at my life, Jim, you would see a life of a lot of improvisation. I mean, it's just, it's just, this is the importance of how the Bible presents these heroes. They're heroes of the faith. But they're heroes of the faith who have a lot of improvisations, to use Jim's word. And I think that's the value of this, as well as what you see happen as a result of it. Uh, uh, yeah, Ron. Well. 
hope this isn't a running trend, maybe it is. Does the fact that, that the, the mother of the family of Day of the Nation of David, the fact that, that she is the, her husband's half-sister, or that they're half-brothers? Yeah, they're half-brothers. Does that make a statement about incest? Um, just make a statement about incest. It, it, uh, yes. I mean, it, it would be, um, okay, I'm not sure where you're going with this, but it would be, it would be understood as an incestuous um, uh, relationship, if you will. Um, I, I, and I'm, so, I guess I don't know what I'm asking, because I don't think anybody necessarily teaches on that, but I recall well, the Bible, um, okay, so if you, you want to broaden that, the Bible does speak to uh, the issue of incestuous relationship in the Levitical Code, uh, Levitical Law. There are very, it's, it's fairly lengthy, actually, very <coughs> specific statements about what characterizes incestuous relationships. Is and this that consistent it, with that? This, well, this would be, con- this would be considered in the Levitical law to be an incestuous situation, Abraham and Sarah. It would be. So then, assuming that that's true, then would that be just another uh, statement about Abraham's flaws? Well, it could be. Or you could look at it as another example of the amazing grace of God, that despite this, he still uses them. Another example of using an incestuous situation is in the genealogy of Jesus. In Matthew 1 is where you see a pretty complete genealogy. One of the, uh, one of the women in that um, is a woman who, uh, and it involves one of the, the patri- uh, patriarchal sons, uh, sons of Jacob, it's Judah, has an incestuous relationship, and the child she has from that is in the line of David. So here again, even though it violated the moral law of God and there was an enormous consequence in Jesus' life because he chose to do that, still God uses it. Just like Rahab, who was a prostitute in Jericho, yet she comes to faith and God uses you know, It's all of these amazing illustrations in God's word of despite human sin and despite... Um, even willful disobedience, where there is the uh, uh, request for forgiveness and, and, and faith, God, in his grace, will take care of that and move on. Because God is dealing with flaw, flaw, uh, flawed, depraved people. And when they... Do that which is displeasing to him, and there is a repentant spirit, he still will continue to use it. It's when there is defiance. I don't care what you say, God, I am not going to do what you want me to do, and I'm not going to feel bad about, I'm not going to confess, I'm not going to seek. That's when God says, okay, I need to discipline you a little more, <laughs> so to speak. Nobody has ever asked me that question and from this, so that's good. Very good. All right. Um, verse 14. I, I had to find my place here. Now, what, what follows here at the end of this narrative in, in, in this chapter is almost, uh, maybe shocking is too strong of a word, but it's surprising at the least because at first you think, well, Abimelech, why does he have to do this? But what he does is he, make re- he makes reparation now for what he did to Abraham. He said, well, wait a minute. Abraham was the duplicitous one. But still, Abimelech took this woman to be one of his wives, one of his concubines. Now he's giving her back to Abraham. But in giving her back to Abraham, he's also making reparations. And it's extraordinary. Notice this. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants and female servants, and gave them to Abraham, and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. 
Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, she said, he said, Behold, I have given your brother. Now, she, he uses the language of how they describe their relationship. A thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. So in making reparations to, in effect, deal with the guilt and responsibility for what he had done in taking uh, Sarah, Abraham will leave Gerar a wealthier man. Isn't that remarkable? I mean, it really is. It's, it's, it's the same thing that happened in the Gen- end of Genesis 12. Abraham leaves Egypt a wealthier man because the Pharaoh of Egypt did the same thing. When he realized he had taken his wife, he gives him, uh, and, and as I recall, there weren't some silver involved, there were large numbers of animals. So again, Abraham will leave this area a wealthier man. Then, verse 17, this takes you back to Abraham is a prophet, he will pray for you. Then, verse 17, Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, healed his wife and female slave, so that they bore children. We are to infer from that 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 was something God was doing as a curse, if you will, on the household of Abimelech. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So Abraham prays, God hears, God restores, and they go on. Why do you think this chapter is here? I mean, obviously, that's a ridiculous question to ask because in one level, who knows, because you and I are not the Holy Spirit inspiring this. But what, what's the importance of this chapter to us? Why, why is this an important chapter? Well, for, for me, it's, it's an encouragement to all of us at this table that we can uh, commit sin knowing that we shouldn't and still seek the face of God through Christ today and ask for forgiveness and reconciliation for our, our worship and fellowship. I mean, if that's our heart's desire, mm-hmm. truly, uh, there's room for repentance, I think, once we've done the wrong thing. And it doesn't have to be... It can be just, God, forgive me. And if it comes from your heart and you really, truly mean it, I think the Bible teaches we are forgiven. I'm sure. Go on with your testimony. Go on with your life and live in the Lord. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, that's what I would get out of. This is kind of a messy uh, chapter. Well, it is. It, it, it's like, this is, why, you, why don't want to know this about Abraham? He gets rewarded for deceitfulness and the other guy... Takes a hit for trying to do the right thing. But he. Well, now wait a minute, though. And in in we say doing the right thing, he took another woman, which no matter how God is looking at it, isn't going to be an acceptable thing. Was that tradition back then? Well, that was. But he's he's a pagan king. He's a Canaanite king. So to take a woman that you want was a very common thing in 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 the ancient world, let alone the Canaanite world. So God isn't affirming that. The issue is that you have this Canaanite king and you have Abraham supposed to be righteous and and following God and a man of faith doing something very deceitful. For what reason? The glory of God? It's a self-protection for very selfish reasons. And yet God, this is what's really something, God will take this pagan king, assuming that's the right way to describe him, bring bring something out of his life to see and understand who the true God is, and in his grace, still affirm and reward Abraham. What I see stamped all over chapter 20 is the grace of God. I mean, I just see, you know, all over this chapter is the grace of God. I mean, it's just, it's an amazing chapter of God's grace. God is gracious to Abimelech. God is amazingly gracious to, to, to Abraham, and really to Sarah, too, because, I mean, Sarah is complicit in this. She, she's just saying he's my brother, which 
technically is, but far more importantly, he is really my husband, which is the information that Abimelech should have had. So, I mean, so you see this, and this is really important for us, and that's part of what Fred was saying, I think, too. It's really important for us. God uses flawed people to accomplish his purposes. And every one of us around this table is a flawed person. We're righteous in the eyes of God. That's our position if we put our faith in Christ. But we still are flawed. We still are depraved. We still can do monstrously evil things if we do not allow God to rule our lives. And here you see this great man, the paradigm of faith in the Bible, not trusting God enough. And he takes it into his own hands. And the, the, this could have been a catastrophe, couldn't it? I mean, if, if, if Abimelech had had sexual intercourse with, with Sarah, I mean, you just you think of all the scenarios that could have happened. It could have been an absolute catastrophe. But God, as, as he said to him, like, but I kept you from sinning with her. So God, I'm in control. No matter what Abraham has said, I'm in control. They are going to give birth to the covenant sons. <laughs> despite, despite the lack of faith in Abraham and his unwillingness to trust me, even in this Canaanite area. I mean, it's just... You just see the sovereignty and grace of God all over this incredible story. I, I, I like what you said about God using Abraham in spite of his flaw. It's similar to the story of David. Oh, absolutely. 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 There's one other lesson that I saw there, too, and that is the lie. And I think this, this is so significant. It's the second time that I've recognized in the book of Genesis where the significance of the lie was the lie of omission mm. or the lack of action. I'm thinking of, uh, we learned from you mm-hmm. about Adam standing mm-hmm. right next to Eve mm-hmm. and not stopping us. Yep, exactly. Yep. It, 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 it really under, underscores how lack of action or lack of the complete truth, how evil it can be. That's right, how it can be twisted and used for very nefarious ends by the evil one. Chapter 21. I'm hoping all your translations have this word. In verse 1, the Lord visited Sarah. Does it have that? Does everybody have that? What, what, is he, what do you have? Blessed. Blessed. What do you, Jim, you, you shook took your head. Note. What is it? The Lord took note of Sarah. Mm. He was gracious to Sarah. All right. I mean, it's all good. I, I like visited in the sense that and, and I think that's why the e- I mean ESV why the editors translate it that way. It's a word of of divine intervention. Now, and it's it's not that you know the Lord is not aware of Sarah and the Lord, is, but it it's the Lord visited. God is now about to divinely intervene in Sarah's life in a supernatural way to shape and mold the destiny for which she was created. That's in back of that word. And it is a term that is used in several parts of the scriptures of God sovereignly intervening to shape the destiny of somebody's life. This this isn't the only reason, but this is one of the primary reasons why Sarah was created. She will give birth to the covenant son. And notice the language. And, and notice again the word, the title for God. There's Lord. It's Yahweh, capital L, capital R, capital Yahweh. Did to Sarah as He had promised. Now, obviously, we're at the point where she is about to conceive and have the baby. Verse two, and Sarah conceived and bore him a son in his old age, at the time of which God had spoken to him. That takes you back to chapter uh, 20, excuse me, chapter 19, when God had said, one year from today, the baby will be born. So I want you to see two things. As he had promised, at the time which God had spoken, the reliability of God's word. When he says he will do something, 
bank on it. He will do it. Now, how many years have they waited? 25 years. Abraham is 100 years old. Sarah is 90 when the baby is born. So here you see, it's 25 years. That's a long time to trust God, isn't it? I mean, he, he heard God say, you know, you're, you're going to have children and you're going to populate the largest uh, sand of the seashore, stars of the sky type of thing. He said, well, I still don't have a son. Uh, you will have a son. How about, how about Eliezer? No, you will have a son. Sarah, how about Hagar? No, you will have a son. 25 years they waited. Question. Why do you think God... Can I put it this way? Let it be 25 years. Why did God wait 25 years? I mean, number 25 isn't important. That's not the, I'm not looking for some numerological thing. That's not what I mean. But 25, why, why so long? Well, I've heard it said that, you know, like the birth of Christ came at, a, at the most opportune time, Fullness of time. in history. Mm-hmm. So I suspect that there's something along that line uh, evident here as well. Well, certainly. I mean, it's a very strategic time in what's going on in the history of the ancient world. Yeah. Anything else? Is Joe? it possible that Abraham really didn't trust him in his heart? Until well, let, let's ask it this way. What was the depth of Abraham's faith 25 years earlier compared to where he is now when Isaac's born? I mean, what can we infer? I'm not sure we can, I, I'm not sure I think the text gleans that or that we can glean that. Well, what would we assume just intuitively? Oh, he would get that his his faith has grown. Okay. Is his delay a test of faith? Sure. It has to be. And that what's really important is the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Chapter 22, and God says to Abraham, "Your covenant son, I want you to take him 3 days north to Mount Moriah." offer him to me. And it is amazing. Abraham doesn't equivocate, doesn't question. He even gets up early the next morning to leave. I just slept in that morning. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, it's just, so where's his faith? It has really grown. Despite the failure of chapter 20, he's still a man whose faith has grown. And from the human perspective, faith takes time. It, I would, I, you know, I know you around the table because several of you have been in this class for a while. <clears throat> you know, I know some of you a little better than I know others, but at a lot, well, I really don't know you. But I'm almost certain that if we could talk transparently around the table, all of you would say your faith in God is a lot deeper now than it was when you first put your faith in him. Because through time, through circumstances, through events, you either grow in your faith or you grow in your rejection and doubt of God. And if you are serious in your walk with God, you, your doubts are there, there's questions there, but over time your faith in God grows, that he is trustworthy, that he keeps his word. And that the test of Abraham, the ultimate test of Abraham's faith growing over these 25 years is what happens in chapter 25. So often, so often God does this. He makes a promise. God made Abraham a promise. I'm going to give you the land. Did Abraham ever see God fulfill that promise? Mm-mm. He never saw his descendants populating the land that God... God even gave him the boundaries. Remember, we looked at the boundaries? He never saw that. Did he not believe? Yes, he believed God was going to do that. So when, when Jesus Christ says, I'm going back, John 14, I'm going back to the Father, but I am coming back for you. Should we believe that? It's been 2,000 years since Jesus Christ uttered that. Should we believe that? Absolutely. Well, Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, a lot of people are going to mock you for believing that because they're going to say, where is he? He's promised to come back. He still hasn't doing it. And you still believe that? What's Peter say? Yes, still believe it. Because the Lord is tarrying 
that's an old King James word. He's not coming back because he wants more people to repent. I put it this way. The Lord delays his return to increase the population of heaven. That's why God's delaying. But does that mean he's not coming back? No. I don't think we can conclude that. So all of this, that's why this, this issue of faith must, and when we're with Abraham, every person in the Bible, but with Abraham in particular, you, you, keep, you have to keep coming back to that. Because that's the one thing the Bible says about Abraham, his faith, his faith, his faith. He's the paradigm of faith. And that's, that's instructive even here. It's 25 years later, but what God said would happen is not about to happen. So the baby's born. What's the very first thing Abraham does? Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him and whom Sarah bore him Isaac, and Abraham circumcised his son. Why did he do that? Well, in obedience to God, but also that was a sign of the covenantal promise. And if Isaac's the covenant son, then he has to have that covenant sign, so to speak. So, I mean, you just see this Here's Abraham, he, despite chapter 20, he's still an obedient, faithful servant of God, and he does what God wants him to do. And eight days old as God had commanded him. And now it just reminds us, verse 5, Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now that contrasts with chapter 18, verse 12 where her laughter was almost mockery. Here it's a, it's, a, it's a laughter, it's a certainty, it's full of praise, it's full of adoration for God. And this joy that comes now from God fulfilling the promise, that's always consistent in the Bible. When God fulfills a promise, among many other responses, there's always the response of joy. And so you see it in verse 7. And she said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. I mean, just the, it's a reminder through these rhetorical questions of Sarah of the extraordinary nature of this miracle. She's 90 years old. She gives birth and she's going to nurse Isaac. That's miraculous. Okay? Yeah, you look back on... Uh, Abimelech, who at the time he wanted Sarah, she was eighty-five, and she must have. There must have been some attractiveness or oh, something about amazing. her that yeah. uh, she didn't. She didn't look like what we would say a ninety-year-old yeah. person today would look like. Yeah, she. Yeah, she must have been beautiful, certainly attractive. I mean, I think Abimelech. I mean, my mother is eighty-nine, and I mean, you know, my mother I think is still a beautiful woman, but. 89 years old, she's not a gorgeous woman that another man is going to say, boy, I'd really like to take her if she were available for my wife. You know, I don't think most, because she's 89 years old. She's frail, you know, all that kind of thing. But that must not have been the way with Abraham. Uh, I mean, with Sarah, excuse me. She, Benelux drawn to her. He sees her, and, you know, as the king. He has went. During that time, what was the longevity of well, Abraham will live to be 175, so he will live another 75 years. Uh, but you're, it is not unusual in this period, in you know, 2,000 years before Christ, 4,000 years ago, to have people living in their hundreds. But, I mean, you don't have, like, Methuselah, 990, you know, we saw earlier. Okay. Now, um, I think we can do this, um, verse 8 through the end of this section, which is chapter uh, uh, 21, verse, uh, 21 uh, verse 20. This is about Ishmael. Now remember who he is. Ishmael is the son of Abraham, but to Hagar. Now at this point, Ishmael, and we're, we're just doing some math here. We go back to chapter 16 and we're... Ishmael is 16 years old here. And so it's Ishmael who is Hagar's son, not the covenant son, a son that was born out of disobedience, 
of Abraham and Sarah, because remember, Sarah's the one who said, Abraham, take Hagar. That's how we'll fulfill this promise. They're taken into their own hands. But God had said, out of Ishmael, I will still make a great people. So now, now the question is, how are Isaac and Ishmael going to get along? Can they live in the same household together? As the child grew and was weaned, now we have to be careful here, but typically in the ancient world, children were weaned about five or six years old. So it's older than what typically, I mean, I'm sure your, your children or now even your grandchildren, weaning them off a mother's breast milk is usually within the first year into the second year. It's rare to have a four or five-year-old child still being nurtured by a mother's breast milk. So this isn't like a year. This is He's probably five, six, somewhere like that. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that he was weaned, which was very typical in the ancient world. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, remember that's where Hagar came from, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Now, that is a very difficult word to translate. It is sometimes translated laughing. Some, I don't know what all your translations, some might have mocking. Okay, but it's, it's a word, it is not a positive word. It's a word of derision. He's not taking it seriously. It's, it's a deceptive um, questioning and mocking. It's the term that was used of Lot's son-in-laws back in chapter 19. You remember that? When Lot is told by them, get out of here, get all your kids together and there, get them together, get out of here. And you remember what Lot's son-in-laws did? They laughed at him. They mocked him. Same word. This is not a positive word. So Ishmael, the 16-year-old, is mocking, making fun of, treating flippantly, however you want to think of that word, the five, six-year-old or so, Isaac. So she, the she is Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman. Now you have to remember that Abraham had declared Hagar to be his wife. He, was, he had a polygamous family. Now Sarah has degraded her, downgraded her, Push her down to a slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Please note, she changes the status of, Sarah, of Hagar. And she says, my son, forgetting that he is also Abraham's son, but my son. It's very, she's really incensed by this, and understandably so. Verse 11. And the thing that was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. Whose son? Ishmael. I mean, he still loves Ishmael, too. So he's saying, I don't want to do this. I don't want to send them away. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For though through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So what is God, despite the character of Sarah, what Sarah is saying, God agrees with. It is not going to be possible for Ishmael and Isaac to live in the same home. This isn't going to work. But then notice what he does, verse 13 I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman. Also because he is your offspring. I promise that, that I will bless Ishmael. I will make him a great nation. And so Sarah, uh, uh, Abraham, it is important to have Sarah and Ishmael out of the house. Don't forget, I'm going to make a great nation out of him. I'm going to take care of him. So again, you see this, uh, this tension <laughs> 
this tension that is in a situation, but it also, listen, it also shows us something. If I can get way beyond the story and make a principle-type statement, polygamous situations are never blessed by God. Polygamous situations always, 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 always create conflict in the family. <coughs> Never in the Bible, do even though some of the key figures of the Bible have more than one wife, it is never presented in a positive way. It is always presented dysfunctionally, filled with sin, duplicity, deceptiveness, and conflict. You want to read another good example of that? Read the chapters in the book of Genesis, which we'll study sometime at the end of 2017 at the rate we're going. Jacob's family. Remember Jacob's family? Twelve sons born to four different women. I don't know if you remember that. That is one of the most dysfunctional families you could possibly imagine. You look at David. King David had several wives. Positive? No, nothing's positive. The kids don't get along. They're killing each other. They're raping each other. It's horrible. The Bible never presents a polygamous situation in a positive light. Here you see it. Because naturally, the mother of one will be jealous of the mother and child of the other, particularly if she's got the inside track. See what I'm saying? So there's a lot you can do with it. It's very important because of the covenantal promise of God. But it's also a commentary. If you do not follow my creation ordinance, which is monogamous, heterosexual, permanent relationship, dysfunction will result. This may be part of the answer to what I was what I want to ask. Um, NIV translation is what I have. I do not see the word, the name Ishmael used at all here. It's always referred to the son of the maidservant, the boy, whatever. I see Isaac plenty of times, but right. I do not see Ishmael. Is that just maybe a off in the weeds, a bunny trail sort of thing? Or is, it, or is there a statement being made here about the, the illegitimate son, Ishmael? Uh, I'm not sure you want to use the word an illegitimate son, but a non-covenant son. He's not the son of the promise. And so, I mean, I think that's an insightful comment and question, Joe, that um, it, is, it is demonstrating, and maybe an even stronger word, it's emphasizing Ishmael is not the covenant son. He's a son of Abraham. I will bless him. You know, I'll make a nation out of him. But he's not the covenant son. And I think it is instructive that in the narrative, you do not see the name of Ishmael here. He's always referred to, in this narrative, not always, but in this narrative, is referred to as the son of the slave one. Three times. Three times it's how he's referred. Okay? Good. That's a good comment. All right. Now, uh, um, I thought I could finish this. So Abraham, this is verse 14. I'm not going to get this to but I want to introduce one or two quick thoughts. So Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder. She doesn't put Ishmael on her shoulder. He's 16. It's the, it's the water. It's the provisions. Along with the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered into the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, what does that mean? Now, remember, they're in Gerar. So she goes kind of a southeasterly direction. She goes down into the Negev, and she's going to head. She's going to then head west. Why does she do that? Egypt. Home. Because she's from Egypt. She's thinking, "I'm going to head back home." So, and we'll see what happens here in just a minute. <clears throat> Verse fifteen: When the water water in the skin was gone, meaning that she had drunk it all, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. That means as far as you can shoot a bow. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him. She lifted up her voice and wept. I mean, this, this is a horrible situation. And so when you stop her at that verse, you say, oh my goodness, is God? Going to let Ishmael die in the desert? 
I do not know how much you know about Islam, but this particular section is extremely important in Islam. Because you know what the Hajj is? The pilgrimage that every Muslim is to make one time during their life, that they're supposed to, they go to Mecca. And one of the things they do is act out the trek of Hagar and how God protected Ishmael. Because in Islam, Ishmael is the covenant son, not Isaac. And so what is going on in this narrative, and this is how the Quran puts it, how Allah preserved and took care of Hagar and Ishmael. And you reenact the torment of Hagar and how Allah saved Ishmael. Now that isn't exactly how the Bible presents it here, but the Bible does say in verse 17, and God heard the voice of the boy. The angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said, what troubles you? So God is about to intervene, and God is about to, quote, save, close quote, Hagar and Ishmael from death. And so next week, I want to pick up with this, because it's almost 10 up, and I must quit. So this is really an important section, and it shows again what God does, and yet what God chooses not to do based on the covenant promise. I wanted to finish this chapter so that I didn't is all your fault. It isn't mine. I no. It's no fault. I'm yeah. just kidding you. We'll pick up but help me to remember where I'm supposed right. to start. I'm gonna pick up the okay. And then we get into chapter twenty two. We don't want to spend a lot of time on chapter twenty two. It's one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Let me close here with prayer. Lord thank you for um, the way in which the Bible presents these uh, great figures of scripture, including Abraham, a man of great faith, of immense faith, but yet a man who still at times doesn't trust you enough, takes things into his own hands and almost creates catastrophe. But as we studied there in chapter 20, you intervened amazingly in Abimelech's life and the things that resulted as a result of that. And now we're in this chapter where we see after 25 years, you keep your promise to Abraham and Sarah. And Sarah's response of joy and exhilaration and adoration of you for what you had done is proper response to you answering prayer, keeping your promise, keeping your word. For you and me around this table, uh, it's so important that we hear again the word of the Lord, that when God makes a promise, bank on it, he will keep that promise. And uh, it's important for us, Lord, to have deeply into our heart that conviction. Help us through your spirit to have that deep conviction that when you make a promise to us, you will keep that promise. And our faith must always, always bank on us. So help grow our faith even through our study of the book of Genesis. Watch over these men and the guys who aren't here for various reasons and not able to be with us. We ask your watch, care, and blessing over them in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.